You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Welcome back, everyone. I get to start us off this week. Yay. Woohoo! Let's get philosophical, Kirk. You ready? Oh, oh, okay. Is Are we, we're water all philosophical this week? We're getting philosophical. Just a little bit. Is water wet? Define wet. Great question. <laughs> Is, that- Is water wet? I don't have a definition of wet. Like how, here, separate question. How do you know when something is wet? Okay, I know know where you're going with this already, Rachel. Um, Oh, of course you do. Look, if I I jump into water and I Mm -hmm. get soaking wet, there's that word right there, I can tell Mm -hmm. that I am wet. I feel wet. I experience wet. Uh, you know, wetness. I, I, if I take a shower, I'm covered in water. I'm wet. If I jump off a boat, I'm, I'm covered in water. Mm-hmm. I'm wet. Uh, you can definitely tell you are wet. But I think the question you're getting at is, can you? Is there such a thing as being wet? Right. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, like, for for example, like. And I'll get into this a little bit more. There is a whole reason why I'm starting it off with this debate. But I think about it. I think I know the reason. Am I able to? Yeah. But like when you're drinking something or experience are sweaty or feel damp or feel like you did an entire topic on humidity. How do you know that you are experiencing the dampness, the wet in the air. How are you know that what you're experiencing is wet? Well, what I can do for you, Rachel, is I can I can tell you a little bit about my experience of what it means to be wet. How's that sound? That that works. Sure. I mean, if I put my hand into a bowl of water, I'm tempted to say, "Well, it feels wet," but I mean, what am I really feeling? I'm I'm probably feeling the temperature of the water mm-hmm. i'm feeling the the slipperiness or the viscosity of that liquid um i'm trying to think what else other sensations i think mean, like how fast i can move my hand and whatnot would be having to do with the viscosity um mm-hmm. if i pull my hand out of that water uh i can see the water dripping off i my hand might feel cold because there's more you know uh, heat leaving my body through maybe if some of that water starts to evaporate and whatnot uh, so yeah, if you grab a towel, right. And you put the towel on, I've had the experience of grabbing a towel and being like, Oh, this towel is wet. Someone used this. But what you're really feeling is that it feels cold. It, yeah. You know, and the, you're feeling the, the temperature feels colder difference. than it should. Yeah. And sometimes I even grab something. I'm like, Oh, this is wet. And then you look and you go, well, no, it, it, it's actually not. It's just, 
it's just really cold and it feels uh, wet. Is that sort of what you're getting at? That is kind of what I'm getting at. Like, for example, <laughs> I for sure have sat in like a really cold metal chair and like jumped up thinking oh, that yeah. it was a wet chair and it wasn't. It was just very mm-hmm. cold. Or for example, if you drink like warm water, like body temperature water or like have it uh-huh. poured on you, I have a hard time being able to tell. Like if I jump into a, a lake and it's the same pe- temperature as like the air, I know that it's wet, but I have a hard time mm. being able to tell. And there's a reason for that. So, yeah, t- tell, tell us. I mean, I, I, I kind of know the reason, but yeah. what, for our listeners who haven't picked up on it, what is that reason? So generally humans, and in fact, most animals cannot tell if something is wet they cannot touch something and tell that it is wet for humans it's a combination we we don't have a we don't have a sense of wet there's no right sensory thing that detects we don't have a receptor that tells us that it's wet those things yeah exactly for humans, it's a combination well, of temperature. Well, we know when things are wet, Rachel. Well, yeah, we know when because are wet. of a combination of like temperature and touch that tells us if something is wet. We can't tell that something is wet. Our brains are tricking us mm-hmm. into thinking things are wet or not all of the time. We have to learn. Based on our past experience. and yeah. Exactly. We have to learn whether or not something is wet. Which is wild to me. Right on. So, in fact... It's, 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 it's very weird. It's so weird. In fact, most animals, like I said, cannot tell if something is wet. They don't have what they're called hygroreceptors. Sure, okay. In their bodies that are able to tell if something is wet. The only animals... It sounds like some animals do. Some animals do. The animals okay. that do are generally insects and arachnids. Really? It's been shown that okay. some stick insects, uh, fruit flies, honeybees, some spiders are able to tell if something is wet. But that makes sense, right? Like they have to be able to tell if something is slick or if they are not even slick. They have to be able to tell if it's going to rain or be able to oh, wow. figure out if there's like raindrops or anything like that if it's wet because if they get wet too much or too wet they could drown right well I was just think about that if you're a small insect a raindrop hitting you or you coming into contact with that is like us having a swimming pool landing on us or something like, exactly yeah. <laughs> like you have it's a to dangerous be able to situation tell. and oh, it's oh man wild like generally speaking this combination that we have as humans and other animals the combination of temperature and touch those receptors that we use they have kind of taken over or taken the place of those hygroreceptors and rendered them like unnecessary even though we can't tell they're not super necessary for us to be able to tell if something is wet i don't have like what we got going on is 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 good enough usually you know right it's all like a a basic thing and it is a it it is more preferred 
system because we don't need specific receptors to tell us if something is wet. It was more valuable for us as humans to be able to tell the temperature of something or to be able to tell or like be able to touch and feel and have a variety of like touch receptors rather than a specific one that tells us, sure. oh, yes, the air is wet. You know? Yeah, I mean, just the humid air feels different to us. We can we can detect that. It's just mm-hmm. not a direct. It's more of an inference based on other things we like. Are sensing, how it's like a little harder to passing. breathe, right? Because we're breathing in yeah, more yeah. water vapor than we would normally expect. So. I don't, it's a, it's a pretty short topic today. Uh, I just really wanted, I came across the fact that humans cannot tell that something is wet. And I'm yeah. in a place currently that has been raining for forever. So. Uh, for, forever. For wow. forever. Good for you. No, it's been raining on and off quite a bit. So we're all just damp. <laughs> At least it's not snow. Yeah. You've had, you've had dampness on the brain. Yeah. So when I, this somehow was sent to me and I was like, hold on. I'm sorry. What do you mean? We can't tell that something is wet. I have now, Rachel, questions. I'm a little concerned about you because I know that it's been very damp. You're saying there's a lot of humidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is exactly the kind of environment where I would expect that fungus could grow. And mm. I heard a story last week. You did. About fungus growing in someone's trachea. So if I'll you keep feel an your eye throat being a little like <clears throat> little, yeah, a little, little rough, mm-hmm. just yeah, watch out for a, a tracheal fungus. I'll I'll take the I hear forty minutes. I hear it's a thing that happens. <laughs> it can be. I'll take the forty minute drive that it takes to get to the first hospital. <laughs> That's such a comforting thought. <laughs> Y'all didn't know. Forty minutes. Wow. Yeah, 40 minutes, at least. I could probably walk to a hospital in 40 minutes. You could. <laughs> Although if I needed a hospital that bad, I probably wouldn't be walking there. But, you know, still, mm-hmm. point, point stands. Point stands. I live in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you live in the middle of the boreal forest. We have established that. Yeah. We have. All right. So my sources this week were the Journal of Neurophysiology, Why Wet Feels Wet, uh, Neurophysiology, Physiological model of human cutaneous wetness sensitivity. Woo. Woo. Uh, the wow. evolution of wetness perceptions, a comparison of arachnid, insect, and human models by Merrick and Phil Nigiri in the journal I can't of. Someone wrote a paper called The Evolution of Wetness. That's. Oh, these titles are excellent, by the way. All right. uh, this was, that was in the journal of thermobiology. I also have the the Science Daily, Why Wet Feels Wet, The Understanding of Illusion of Wetness. And then my last source is from the National Library of Medicine, Human Wetness Perception, Physio, or Psychophysical and Neurophysiological Bases by Phil, Neri, Phil Nagari and Havaneth. Sorry if I butchered any names. You went on quite names. a deep dive there. I went on such a deep dive. I My brain is filled... And it all boils down to we can tell the temperature no. and the touch. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it boils down to. A lot of reading to boil that down to that. Wow. Yeah, but uh, it was good. So when you did that deep dive, could you feel the moisture in the water when you dove in? Uh, No. The answer is no. No, you couldn't. The answer is no. <laughs> 
All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, it'll be Kirk. Hey, everyone, we are back. Rachel. Kirk. You did a deep dive a little while back on yeast. Do you recall that? I did a deep dive in the way that it was the briefest, barest, like skimming of the surface of yeast. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't. Uh, so you did a shallow dive on yeast. I water skied across with it. With so many facets to it. Yeah. Well, yeast is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an amazing life form that allows us to make everything from bread to medicine to beer. Mm-hmm. But something rose up to my attention recently. Oh, man. That I just had to share. Yeah, it's pretty bad. That was a pretty uh, bad Because pun. it's strange. And that's what we do. Mm-hmm. So beer making takes a lot of yeast. And when you're done making the beer, you have a lot of uh, like dead, inactive yeast sitting around. Right. It can sometimes be added to animal feed for like extra nutrients. But uh, often, apparently, it's just dumped into a landfill, which That's lame. isn't so great. Researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT as it's known, mm-hmm. I think they might have an interesting idea for what to do with that yeast. They think it could be used to take heavy metals out of drinking water. What? So this is really cool. Hold uh, on. Process... Yeah, keep, keep going. Sorry. I'm very excited. I'm yeah. so intrigued by this. <laughs> I know, right? The process is called biosorption. Okay. What kind of bioabsorption, but they call it biosorption. Uh, And it's, this process has been around for for decades. This idea of using something organic to absorb heavy metals, often lead, but it could also be cadmium or something else that's Mm -hmm. toxic like that, or even mercury. You're just using something natural to soak it up, like a sponge kind of, right? Right. That's not too hard to kind of picture and this has been shown to be effective like when there's high concentrations of a pollutant but this team wanted to find out could this remove like very small trace amounts of lead from water now there are different standards around the world but here in the u.s the epa or the environmental protection agency has declared that there is no safe level of lead in water it's not like x number of parts per million million it's no zero yeah there is no safe level of lead. I agree uh, with that's this. That's not yes. necessarily true in other countries. Doesn't mean that it is safe in those countries. It just means we have a little bit higher standard here. And so lead pollution in water is actually uh, a really big problem. Lead is very, very toxic and mm-hmm. it bioaccumulates in your body. So even a little bit over a long time can have you know quite a lot of problems. And sadly, uh, a lot of water here in the U.S., and even more globally, uh, is polluted with lead. It's, it's fairly they, common from a lot of different sources. Well, didn't they used to like make pipes out of lead for water? Oh, a- absolutely. The the ah. house that I uh, lived in before my previous house now uh, was built in 1926, and we had a, a lead water main coming into our basement. We eventually replaced it uh, when we. Um, uh, had our house, uh, we had our sewer line redone because mm-hmm. that also was almost 100 years old. And at the same time, we said, hey, you know what? It's going to cost a bunch of money, but let's replace that water line too just because we didn't want anything to happen to happen to that. Now, we did test our water often and the there was not getting lead from those pipes because there was like a layer of 
like gunk and <laughs> deposits that build up on the inside of the pipe and okay. actually seal the the lead from the water surface. This is actually That's since you brought it up, awesome. that was the problem that of what happened in in Flint, Michigan, mm. is they had old water pipes. When they changed the source of the drinking water, this new water source um, ate away all of those decades of um, deposits on people's lead pipes. And suddenly the amount of lead in everyone's water skyrocketed from the lead pipes that had always been there. But they kind of screwed up by changing the water supply. It's still a problem, actually, over in Flint. Uh, Yeah. No, it's a terrible problem. Mm -hmm. Not just there. So no. Lead is really, really bad, especially for small children. It can cause all kinds of developmental problems and health problems. And there's even a theory out there that lead exposure causes serial killers. Have you heard about this? You know, I actually have. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and things. Okay. And I, yeah, I I have seen like, because the idea is, is a lot of serial killers seem to have wiring different or their the wiring in their brain, their pathways and everything are a little different. Mm-hmm. And it can be is generally attributed to something like a traumatic brain injury or something similar that affected in their environment right. and and lead often creates, like you said, neurological problems. So. Right, and on a bigger picture, it's actually called the lead crime hypothesis. We know that lead exposure can cause impulsiveness mm-hmm. and aggression. Uh, there was one study that showed that lead exposure correlated with school suspensions and with juvenile detention. And interestingly, when lead gasoline was largely banned, there was a corresponding decrease in violent crime in the country. Mm. Uh, so, it Probably to be with clear, lead, lead does too. not make people. Yeah, and lead paint too. Uh, lead does not make people serial killers. <laughs> people Mm-mm. my age and older were exposed to plenty of lead growing up, and everyone isn't out there, you know, murdering everybody. Right. But I think the idea is that it could statistically uh, influence those edge cases where mm-hmm. it kind of pushes them over. Someone's more the likely edge. to be violent or more likely to engage in criminal behavior. It makes all those sorts of crimes more. Um, possible so mm-hmm. just fa- really fascinating some people are still trying to research uh one place lead used to come from was gasoline um mm-hmm. and you still you see like gas sold as unleaded it's because there was lead in there even when i was was born there wow. is incidentally still lead gasoline being sold in this country what? but it's not really down at the corner gas station it's used in general aviation so not all your big like jets and things for like those Engines that have a propeller on the front, basically small recreational aircraft like you see taking off from small local airfields. Mm-hmm. The gas they use is often still leaded gas. And as they buzz overhead, they're basically spewing lead particles all over our communities, which is, you know, not great. Uh, and there I'll go is actually a real concern for people who who live near small airports. Right. So if you right. have. If you're in that flight path where every day they're flying right over your house, that's much more of a concern than if, you know, occasionally one flies real high, you know, in your neighborhood or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And tests indeed have shown high lead levels in the blood of children who grow up near these small regional airports. So is still a concern. I will say overall airborne lead has fallen 99 percent since the year 1980 in the U.S., which is impressive. But any lead is harmful and it's important to go all the way toward eliminating it. 
Uh, the FAA actually, uh, which is the body that regulates air travel in the U.S., has set a goal of eliminating lead in airline fuel or airplane fuel by 2030, which wow. seems like some like crazy wild future date to me. Nope, but, that's and then I realized, like oh, wait, that, no, six that's, years from now. That's only seven years away. Oh, okay. God. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well uh-huh. cool. All right. How is that only... I, I oh, don't know, Kirk. I don't know. So when anyways, I was little, I thought I would make it to the year 3000. I don't know. I don't think your odds are good of that, Rachel. I was you very young um, when I thought that. I was young enough that I thought the year 2000 was going to be some crazy wild future uh, year. And <laughs> it, it, it really wasn't. No. Uh, so anyways, uh, lead is bad. And we want to get rid of it. So mm-hmm. let's get back to our topic here. Is beer yeast the solution? I had maybe. I, maybe. So this okay. is just I'd forgotten you, you forgot were talking we about started this. There, didn't you? <laughs> I did. Uh, this was just a demonstration study. But what these researchers demonstrated uh, was in a, that in a lab, a single gram of inactive dried yeast cells could remove up to 12 milligrams of lead in water when the starting concentration was below one part per million. So that is wow, very low levels yeah. of lead. And the fact that this was effective at removing That's know, amazing. Uh, 12 milligrams of lead per uh, gram of, of yeast is really impressive because we mm-hmm. knew that this sort of um, process could work on like have higher concentrations but the fact that it's working for some of this low level stuff uh, has the researchers kind of going ooh fascinating <laughs> this could actually be the kind of thing where we could we could treat all the water in a city perhaps mm. um it was quite effective and being as how uh most of the researchers were at MIT which is in Boston they mm-hmm. used that city as an example and they calculated that to purify all of the drinking water in the city they would need, get ready for it, Rachel. I'm ready. 7,000 tons <laughs> of dead yeast per year. Oh. Now, that's, that's a lot. That's a bit. <laughs> uh, one, I did the math on this here. One U.S. ton is 2,000 pounds. Uh-huh. So that's 14, 14 million pounds oh of yeast. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> 14 million. So you take all those uh, six zeros, Woo! put a 14 in front of it. That is 14 billion pounds of yeast. That is so, okay. a lot uh, of yeast. This isn't, this isn't practical, you're no. thinking, right? Well, Rachel. What? Think again. <gasps> I think you are massively underestimating how much beer Americans drink. Uh, actually, again, you know what? We, we do live next to the great state of Wisconsin, so. So you have some experience. I have some experience, yeah. Yeah. Um, here's the deal. Because they're in Boston, they phoned up uh, the Boston Brewing Company to get their <laughs> statistics. Mm-hmm. And you may not recognize that name, Boston Brewing Company. Mm-hmm. They're behind a lot of the brands you've probably heard of. They brew Samuel Adams. Okay, yeah, They yeah, brew yeah. Truly. They brew Dogfish Head, Angry mm-hmm. Orchard, Twisted Tea. And then, so those are big national brands, but also a bunch of small, like, local and off-brand beers and beverages. Yeah. You probably haven't heard of unless you're from Boston. This, this one beer company generates 
20,000 tons of yeast waste per year. Whoa. That's 40 million pounds of yeast waste. <laughs> so okay. only needing 14 of those 40 million pounds, suddenly you're like, oh, hey, I wait a minute. I think we could that- do it. <laughs> Now you could possibly do that. Yeah. Um, so clearly the capacity exists to use yeast or dead yeast to filter our water of lead. But like an actual practical commercial method uh, would still need to be devised. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, it's just sort of a cool idea. But and, what a uh, fun idea. How would, how would you actually do this on a large scale? Not just like in a beaker or something, right? Or whatever mm-hmm. they use. Like you, you'd need an actual process to like process all this water think how much water goes through a municipal water supply Oof. it's a very large amount but that is something you had like another like now. tub or whatever like when you're going through water processing plant yeah, like have I, their own, I, I like, don't know pool? i don't know maybe and have Could it you go basically create through? filters full of yeast so that's the water flowing through i'm not quite sure maybe that's it's like a running filter out. of the yeast as the mm-hmm. water goes through or like hmm fascinating then you got to get the beer taste out of your water probably uh, maybe well uh, it's all you anyways stuff, i so. thought it was really cool That's fascinating to like a, a way to reuse an industrial waste product yeah uh, from beer to give us clean water and remove lead from our lives that is just awesome and strange i love that and very very cool uh, so unexpected cool. use for yeast so my sources this week were of course mit but also the epa and the life science network that was just a cool story i thought everybody here needed to know that was so fun kirk my god i know you're probably worried it was going to be a story about infections when i mentioned I, yeast, but no i was a little bit went away from infections we talked about beer instead a little bit more fun yeah indeed <laughs> Thanks, Kirk. You've done it. You have. Uh, you've joined us, and you have. Uh, you've made it through an episode. Congratulations. We'll see everybody next week. Thanks so much. Bye. Goodbye. Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.